When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. It's our time. Watch it have Hello and welcome to a special edition of Women vs. Hollywood, the podcast that looks at the fall and rise of women in film. I'm your host, Helen O'Hara, and basically we're just coming back for a quick hello uh, to celebrate the paperback release of my book of the same name as this podcast, which is out on February 3rd in the UK and Ireland. Uh, So do pick that up in all good and evil bookshops. But we thought we'd come back and actually bring you something substantial and useful and interesting. And that is a much longer and fuller version of our interview with Professor Shelley Stamp, who is a professor of film and digital media at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And she is an expert on early Hollywood, on silent era. Um, she's writ- literally written the book on Lois Weber and on silent women, pioneers of cinema. And she's also an expert on basically, you know, the entire studio era as well. So we thought she'd be a great person to give us some content context for those early decades of women in film. So please enjoy basically this much longer, much fuller interview with Shelley Stamp. And if you would like to listen to more from Women versus Hollywood, if you can just scroll down your podcast feed from this episode, you'll have to go past episodes of my Christmas podcast, which we just put in the same place for convenience, which I realise is not now convenient for you at this time of year. But anyway, scroll down and you will find the complete series taking you right through the story of the book. But in the meantime, please enjoy Professor Stamp. Let's start with the silent era. Learning about that was my big revelation, really, of this whole process. And just the fact that we seem to really go backwards uh, in terms of women in film for, for a little bit. So, you know, are there particular female directors or filmmakers in general that stand out to you from the silent era that you think more people should know about? First, let me say that you're not alone in sort of having this epiphany about the silent era. It's incredibly frustrating to me that so few people know about the number of women who were directing in the silent era, the number of women who were prominent screenwriters in the silent era. I feel like if more people knew this history, it would really change the way we think about the present and the way we think about the subsequent history, because this has been done before. We're not doing something new Uh, in trying to get more women in positions of creative control. We're really just going back to where we were 100 plus years ago. And so that's frustrating that that nobody knows that. Um, Now, in terms of particular women, I mean, first of all, I would say it's really important that everybody understands the breadth and depth of women directing in the silent era. I mean, it's, it's fantastic to highlight 
particular women with particular strength. But I think it's really important to understand that there were many, many women directing. So, you know, a studio like Universal released hundreds of films directed by women in the 1910s. And there were women working in Hollywood. There were women working in studios outside of Hollywood. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston is, is making ethnographic films of black communities in Florida. There's women making comedies. There's women making feature films. There's women making documentary ethnographic films. There's women making serials. I mean, the, the breadth and depth of what women are doing is, is incredible in the silent era, and that really needs to be recognized. Uh, now, if you're going to ask about particular filmmakers, of course, I'm going to say Lois Weber, because I, I have a particular place in my heart for her, but also because she was one of the most prominent directors in early Hollywood, period, full stop. She's, she's often called, you know, one of the most important early female filmmakers. And that's great. We need to recognize her gender. It's an important part of who she was and how she worked and the, the films she made. But it puts her in a side category. She's one of the most important early filmmakers, period. And we really need to recognize that. And I could go on forever about her. Uh, what I particular, I mean, let me just, let me just say maybe two things about her. One thing is that she really tackled key social issues in the U.S. in this period. So the fight to legalize contraception, um, the fight to abolish capital punishment, uh, drug abuse, poverty, really important and controversial issues that were difficult for people to talk about. And she made popular narrative films about them. And in virtually all of her films, there are female protagonists. It's women's stories and women's experience and women driving social change that are at the heart of her films. And so those are maybe two of the many things that I love about her. Learning about her has been one of the big joys of this journey. It's just fascinating, absolutely fascinating woman. So, okay, let's just like go back to basics. And I think, you know, you're going to tell me it's it's complicated is probably the real answer to this. But But why is it that women had these opportunities at this point in history? I mean, they couldn't even vote for most of the silent era. And yet, they were able to do this in a way that they wouldn't be for the next 60 years. You know what? I'm not going to say it's complicated. There's a particular set of circumstances in early film history in the US that give opportunities to a lot of people. So first, film becomes popular very fast and becomes the top commercial entertainment form in the U.S. very quickly in the early 1910s, even before that, right? So there's a tremendous need for film product, right? Everybody's going to the movies. Movie theaters show multiple films a day. They change their programs sometimes two and three times a week. So there's a tremendous demand for films. That creates opportunity for a lot of people. It creates opportunity for women. There's an explosion of black filmmakers in this era as well, right? Same thing. There's a need for film products. So that's Reason number one, probably the most important reason. Number two is that early filmmaking was less rigidly defined by roles. So it was much easier than it would become to move from being a writer to an actor to a director or some combination of those roles. They were very, very fluid. And credits weren't codified. Even the notion of a director comes in much later, really, than women start to work, right? And so many women who are acting start writing the scenarios for the films they're in and then start 
telling people where the camera should go. And, and, and that's the beginning of directing, right? So that fluidity of roles, that sort of artisanal aspect of early filmmaking really, again, creates opportunity. And then I would also say that for women in particular, in the 1910s, women are being taken seriously, particularly white middle-class women are being taken seriously as sort of arbiters of taste. And as cinema becomes more popular, it also becomes more controversial. And there is a desire to have, again, in particular, white middle-class women working behind the scenes as a kind of guarantor of taste, right? That the, the films are, are upstanding and respectable because there are women working behind the scenes, right? So I think that combination of things creates incredible opportunity for, for women that they wouldn't really have again for a long, long time, if ever. So what changed? Because, you know, the hunger for content was still there. Um, you know, th this idea of women being somehow more moral or having this, you know, trustworthy taste persisted at least a little bit longer. But but what what changed? Was it money? Was it basically the scale of what was happening? Was that the big change? Yes. Yeah, you're right. Money and scale, that's a very good way to put it. What happens is that by the early 20s, film in the US has become one of the most profitable industries in the entire country, really behind oil and uh, automobile manufacturing, right? It's an incredibly profitable industry. And power consolidates in a few studios in Hollywood, whose names we still know, right? And those studios begin buying up theater chains and consolidating power, pushing out independent production companies, many of which are owned by women and people of color. So that happens, right? It becomes much harder to work independently. Trade guilds become more powerful and consolidate power and, again, tend to push out women and people of color. The, the film historian Karen Ward-Mahar has a, a really good argument about this. And, and her argument is that in order for the studios to consolidate power, they had to borrow substantial amounts of money from Wall Street banks. And in doing so, they adopted a kind of corporate culture, a masculinized corporate culture, and therefore excluded, began to exclude women. So it happens pretty swiftly, you know, so that by the early 20s, um, there are very few women still directing. Most of the independent production companies run by women have collapsed. You know, so it happens before sound comes in, <laughs> right? It happens in that moment. And also, you know, in the 1910s in the US, the notion of kind of feminine respectability that gathers around white middle class women that notion of femininity or the kind of femininity that's celebrated in the 1910s really shifts in the 20s. And the femininity that's celebrated is youthful and um, exuberant, right? The flapper model is very, is, is a little bit inconsistent with the idea of a, you know, professional woman like a director, right, running a set. So somebody like Lois Weber, who's, who's still trying to work in the 20s, right, after her production company collapses, says you know, when she goes on a set in 1927, after 20 years in the film industry, she has this sort of startling realization that, that the male crew is not respecting her. And she's never experienced that before. But it's a new thing for her, you know, as this <laughs> very seasoned filmmaker to walk on a set and realize that the men are no longer respecting her because they're not used to working with women uh, in, in control, right? Women directors. That that culture seems to have, again, as Hollywood kind of professionalized, that culture of we're not taking orders from you 
really did seem to become a factor and remains a factor. I mean, from from female directors I've spoken to today, you know, they're still sometimes struggling to prove themselves to the crew, no matter how much they've they've got on their CVs. Right. And, and every time a, a big budget action adventure film comes out uh, in Hollywood that's directed by a woman, every time there's hand wringing. Oh, my goodness. Can can women direct action films? Oh, my goodness. Will a a female lead in an action adventure film sell at the box office um every time there's hand wringing and and you know of course i i always have to say well okay a hundred plus years ago this happened <laughs> and nobody was surprised and yet we continue to be pretend to be surprised by this every single time well i mean that's one of the things i was going to ask you about you know do you see common threads between that moment and this because you know in some ways we have we have similar uh forces acting on us you know there's the same kind of democratization of the means of making films since everybody got a phone camera right i mean you know there are films that have been successful that have been filmed on an iphone so there's still that opportunity in some ways in theory is still there, but these structural forces seem to remain in place. Yeah, I think the filmmaking has been democratized, but the systems of distribution are still really controlled by a very few companies, and I'm including streaming platforms as well, right? Um, that that That's the key, right? So you have to both arms have to be democratized. It's not, you know, if everybody's making a film on their phone, that's one thing. But if nobody else is seeing it except their friends on TikTok, it <laughs> doesn't really help. Yeah, um, absolutely. You've touched on this a bit, but I, I want to kind of uh, get you on it a little bit longer. But, you know, how did the studio system kind of develop from that point? You know, and how did it change Hollywood for women kind of maybe more generally? Because it's not just directors, is it, that were, that were kind of forced out as the studio era took hold? Yeah. So there's a, a huge generation of, of female directors in the silent era. And there is arguably an even more important generation of female screenwriters in the silent era. All of the top screenwriters in the silent era were women. I mean, we can only imagine a world in which all of the top screenwriters are women. Um, and it it is easier for women to continue in screenwriting, you know, into the studio era, into the sound era, but it's it too becomes a male-dominated profession. Directing is the hardest hit, right? So Dorothy Arzner is the, really the only woman directing in Hollywood in the sound era. After she retires, Ida Lupino then is the only woman directing in the late 40s and into the 50s and early 60s. Um, it's not until the 1970s when you get uh, a new generation of female filmmakers. And as uh, Maya Montagna Smuckler talks about in her book, Liberating Hollywood, really, it, that generation is possible only through incredible activism behind the scenes in the trade guilds. The impact on female filmmakers is profound in the studio system in the sound era. And it's so profound that, you know, Arzner, whose work is fabulous, really gets kind of sidelined into directing women's pictures, you know, what we would now call chick flicks. And they're they're fantastic. And she does an amazing amount within that genre. But she's sort of kept in a lane, right? And then Lupino directs only because she leaves the studio system and founds her own independent production company with the explicit aim of making films that the studios, on topics the studios will not touch, you know, sexual assault, bigamy, pregnancy outside of marriage. I mean, just topics that the studios wouldn't ever, ever touch. So the impact of the studio system and the changes that, that start to take place in the early 20s is really profound on 
directors, as I said, I think screenwriters have it a little better. There's an interesting generation of female producers that emerges in the 1940s. So Virginia Van Up, um, Joan Harrison, uh, Harriet Parsons, all of whom are producing and all of whom have a profound impact on film noir when it emerges in the 1940s, right? Uh, This cycle of films that's all about gender (laughs) and, and all about, you know, a new kind of masculinity that's uh, wounded and neurotic and paranoid and a femininity that is strong and deadly and and independent. I don't think it's any accident that female producers play an important role in that cycle of films in the late 40s. It definitely becomes harder for women to be in positions of creative control in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. But there are interesting examples, right, of, of directors like Arsner and Lupino, of screenwriters, of uh, producers. Emily Carmen's work has shown that uh, stars in the 30s and 40s, female stars, were, were really assertive about getting creative control over their careers and negotiating more lucrative contracts. So th- there's opportunities you know, within the system in those years, but it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the screenwriters, it seems that most of the ones who survived mostly were were couples like it was a it was a you know husband and wife writing teams it seems like um looking at, at the biggest credits in that era which is i mean they were still women they were still there that's good but it, it's a bit limiting in terms of what they could do i guess yeah although there are still if you think about Frances marion so she's a, as an example of somebody who survived from the silent era right and 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 kind of hits her stride as a screenwriter in the studio era and again film noir there's screenwriters behind film noir, Lee Brackett, Catherine Turney. I mean, you mentioned you mentioned the stars, though. I mean, it's it's a fascinating era in terms of women in the studio system, because on one hand, you have the, you know, the, the successes, the Betty Davises and the Joan Crawfords and so on, who just did take quite a degree of control of their careers and did fight back steadily against the system and try and get what they were worth. And you also have the women who were kind of remade from the ground up to become stars and and, and manipulated into new f- shapes and new new formats and new names and everything it's, so it's it's an it's it's a really complicated subject i guess when you get into actresses but but you know can you talk a little bit about that about this how the studio system shaped these women and how they shaped the studio system and fought back yes and 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 here i'm going to lean again on emily carmen's work she does she's really done kind of amazing research about this, about, you know, her, many people know about the Olivia de Havilland lawsuit against Warner Brothers, which is 1943. And it, uh, she, she wins after a long battle, right? She wins the right for actors to freelance after they have obeyed the terms of their contract. And many people think of that as sort of the beginning of freelance work and the beginning of actors asserting control over their career and their star persona. And and Emily Carmen shows that it's really the other way around, that de Havilland's lawsuit is really the culmination of a long period in the 30s and early 40s when many other women were trying to wrestle control of their careers. And so she talks about Barbara Stanwyck and Carol Lombard and Katharine Hepburn as as actresses who really negotiated creative control, negotiated um, more lucrative contracts, and and she talks about how that became 
part of their star persona as well. These kind of independent career women. And it's a really interesting argument, right? And, and, and her argument is that it's the female stars that were kind of at the forefront of this. Ultimately, you know, getting back to somebody like Ida Lupino, Ida Lupino was in that same battle, right? Ida Lupino was suspended many times in the 30s for, for refusing to, to work on projects she didn't want to work on. And that's what propels her into directing and producing in the 40s, right? She, she wants to have a certain more creative control. And I should say, again, leaning on Carmen, that this kind of, and Carmen calls this independent stardom, that this is a privilege that, that white actresses have. And so she talks about uh, actresses like Anna Mae Wong or Lupe Velez, who really don't have that kind of creative control, right? Who are um, forced into racist caricature, regardless of whether it's a starring role or a supporting role, and who have a kind of forced independence because they're rarely under long-term contract, right? So, so it is important to acknowledge that. It's sort of fascinating because, again, it feels like well, the, the first thing that came to mind when, when you're saying it's, it was mostly the women fighting back. I'm wondering. Is it mostly the women who were being given bad parts? I mean, because if you were a, you know, if you were a, a, a Bogart or a Cary Grant, maybe you had less to sort of push back against because the parts weren't so terrible. There seems to be more evidence of women pushing back and women wanting control, which I agree with you. That suggests that there's more problematic roles, right? Or that there are parts they don't want to play. And this is a battle that I'm, I'm sure many actresses would tell you about today, right? That the persistent sidelining of female characters into marginal parts, the, you know, the absence of substantial roles, particularly for women over a certain age. I mean, and, and, and luckily, we have statistical evidence now from, you know, the inclusion initiative at USC, from Gina Davis's um, institute, from... Uh, Marshall Lawson's work at San Diego State University, all the statistical evidence to show us that, yes, it's true, <laughs> right? That, that, all, that it's not just individual experiences of actresses, that really the speaking parts for women, that the screen time for female characters is way below um, that for male actors and male characters. So yeah, it's a battle that's still being fought, I'm sure. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Having talked again to, to actresses sort of in my day job, Hundred percent, still definitely happening. Oh, I mean, you've you've mentioned women of color that they were treated worse by the system. They were, you know, denied roles more so than white women, and kind of exoticized when they were on screen and limited, obviously, in the roles they could play by the by the censorship system. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could sort of tell us a little bit about that because it it feels like they had an almost impossible task to make an impact at all. Yeah, absolutely. And there are, again, there there are historians that are working on this in really interesting ways. So Iman Wong is writing a book on anime Wong, which is really fabulous. And, and she's sort of looking at what anime Wong does within the limited parts and screen time she's given to resist um, the racist caricature and to really sort of foreground the racism that's inherent in these roles. And it's, it's a really interesting analysis. Another film historian, Miriam Petty, has looked at black stars in the 30s and the value that those stars, even in kind of limited parts and, and sort of racist caricatures in, in white-dominated films, but the importance that those roles and those actresses had for 
black audiences in the 30s, right? Um, and she's, so she's looked at black newspapers and black magazines and the coverage that those stars had and the films had. So she's looked in particular at 1934 Imitation of Life film, right? Which is about racism in a certain way, right? So there's, there's really interesting work, I think, being done around actresses of color in this period who, as you say, are in a, a horrible bind, right? In order to work, they take parts that are marginal and they take parts that are racist. But there are ways in which sometimes they negotiate through that or their, their, their viewers can kind of read in and around that. And that, so there's very interesting work being done about that right now. I've read some uh, interesting kinds of like Hattie McDaniel's sort of basically playing a role that plays in one way to a white audience and in a completely separate way to a black audience who are kind of more clued into the fact that she's basically taking the mickey out of her, you know, on-screen boss or whatever. So yeah, it's that, that's the kind of thing you had to do, I guess. I mean, in terms of, um, you know, obviously we're talking, you know, intersectional uh, identities uh, struggling against the system. I mean, there were morality clauses in place, which basically meant that LGBT plus people were completely unable to express that openly in their lives or on screen. Um, you know, were people caught out by the system that way? Were were, pe- were the careers ruined through those clauses? I think there was incredible cover up, <laughs> um, incredible successful cover up for LGBTQ performers. I think directors were, a, like Dorothy Arzner or James Whale or George Cukor, were able to work and be relatively open in their professional lives in a way that, that was easier than it was for for actors, for sure. It, it seems like it wasn't really until, I guess, Confidential came along in the, what, the 50s that people were, anybody would talk about this openly, because even talking about it was so beyond the pale, right? Right, right, yeah. Yeah, and even confidential uses innuendo, and even confidential doesn't talk about it directly. I was wondering, I mean, in terms of again, you know, structural problems that women in particular face—not just women, but but mostly women. Um, I was wondering if you could give us some historical context to the sort of the Me Too movement and to this very, very long tradition in Hollywood of the casting couch uh, in inverted commas and and just the that extra level of possible harassment that you would face? The earliest instance that I have found of reports in trade journals about sexual abuse and sexual assault, right, in the film industry is 1913, right? That's how far back this goes, right? I mean, literally, that's that the first year of Hollywood filmmaking, right, pretty much? Exactly, exactly. Wow. And, and there's an account of, you know, uh, a director who is demanding sexual favors in return for casting and opportunities, right? Exactly the, the thing we know about. So this has a long, 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 long history in Hollywood. And the casting couch euphemism is is such a horrible euphemism because it's covering over sexual assault. Um, it's such a horrible euphemism. But it's ingrained in the industry, or it has been ingrained in the industry. And I'm very hopeful that with the Me Too movement and with the prosecution of Harvey Weinstein, that things are going to change. And I think that the the reporting that Jody Cantor and Megan Tuhi did for the New York Times and that Ronan Farrow did, that reporting is really, really important. 
It takes it out of the anecdotal, it takes it out of the individual story and says, this is a widespread problem in the industry now. You know, it's not a, a casting couch thing that we joke about from the 30s and 40s. It's a widespread problem now. And so I am hopeful that the sort of public discussion about this and the reporting and the actual prosecution of individuals it, is going to perhaps change this long-standing culture. Me too. I mean, I, I think it. Me too. <laughs> Wrong choice of words, but <laughs> um, but it does feel like something fundamentally shifted in people's perception. Like like it was the subject of jokes. I mean, what was it? Twenty twelve. Seth MacFarlane was joking about it at the Oscars. Yes. And you know, and it was and it was still a joke in very recent memory. And suddenly people were like, wait, this is awful. This is horrific. And, and I think the other thing that's changed, too, is that the actresses that are speaking out help us to understand the connection between that behind-the-scenes behavior and what we see on screen. So, you know, Selma Hayek talking about Weinstein, you know, insisting on her appearing nude in a, in a scene with another woman and sort of punishing her for not uh, having sex with him. I mean, it's all related. We need to look at the on-screen violence in relation to what's happening behind the scenes. And same with... So it's, it's, it's incredibly important for, for film in particular to think about this Me Too moment, because it's not just a few bad apples. It's not just unfortunate behavior behind the scenes. There's a connection between the representation of women on screen, the representation of female sexuality, of violence against women, to what's going on behind screen. Because, it, yeah, it does all tie together. And, and also it keeps women out of the positions of power. Because if you're worried about being in a room with, say, Harvey Weinstein, you're not going to go in there voluntarily and argue for your character to do something more realistic, let's say, because you're just you're just going to try and keep your head down and get through it. One thing we're asking everybody that we talk to at the moment is is to recommend an underrated or underseen film by a, a female filmmaker or star. What would you say that people need to see more? I'm going to recommend Ida Lupino's Not Wanted, which is, you know, one of a series of films that she made at her independent production company, The Filmmakers. And it's about pregnancy outside of marriage. So it takes on a social issue that the industry was really not making films about at that point. And it takes on that issue from a female perspective. So it, it uses cinematic techniques in its sound design, in its cinematography, to really engage with female subjectivity through flashback, through oral memories. And it deals with sexual desire, female sexual desire. It deals with pregnancy and the experience of childbirth from a female perspective. So it's really an extraordinary film, really extraordinary film. And pe people now, I think, recognize that she really did some extraordinary work. I think many people have seen Not Wanted, but but for, to anybody who hasn't seen Not Wanted, I would highly recommend it. Absolutely, I hundred percent co-sign that. I think I think more people have seen The Hitchhiker, but like maybe mm. fewer have seen Not Wanted. So I feel like that's a good yeah. recommendation. Yeah, yeah, and Not Wanted and Outrage. I actually went back mm. and forth. Should I recommend Not Wanted or Outrage? Both of them I love, and I like even better than The Hitchhiker. I I'm a big fan of The Hitchhiker too, but but I think Not Wanted and Outrage are even more interesting and daring and um, amazing thank you so much for listening to women versus hollywood i've been your host helen o'hara and you can find my book women versus hollywood the fall and rise of women in film 
anywhere that books are sold here in the UK. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd really appreciate it. And to find us on social media, use the hashtag Women Hollywood. This podcast is produced by Stripped Media with our executive producers, Kobe Omanaka and Ella Watts and our producer, Maddie Searle. The podcast artwork is by Steve Laird. And thanks for listening. I will see you next time. You just heard a Stripped Media production.